was reminded this past week as I was, you know, preparing this message. My son came in into the, to the uh, kitchen like this. He had his pants on, and his pants were up like this. And my wife looked at him. She goes, son, I think you've grown out of your pants. And he's like, no, these fit perfectly. These fit perfectly, mom. And she's like, you're not supposed to see your socks, son. <laughs> and he's growing. We've all had this happen when our kids start to grow up and they get too big. And there's growing pains that happen. There's growing pains that happen uh, with our children, with our families, if you've ever been in business, where things begin to happen, things begin to expand, and then problems develop. Issues come up. Things that don't go the way that they were supposed to go. Things change. Things evolve. Things move. And we have to adjust for it. We see that wherever we go, in athletic teams, we see it in our workplaces, see it in schools, people see things begin to expand, and there are problems that develop. As one famous philosopher said, more money, more problems. Or just more people, more problems. It's also the reality is when you have people come into life, there are more problems that develop. But the question is, how do we handle those issues? How do we handle those problems? And when I look at the church, I see a lot of people, which means what? A lot of problems. There's a lot of problems. We all have our issues. We all have our struggles. And as we interact with people that are seeking God together, we're bound to offend someone, step on someone's toes, or someone's going to offend us, or issues are going to come up that makes us feel neglected. I've had so, pe so many people tell me uh, over the years that they like small churches or they don't like big churches, and they contrast this back and forth. And, and some say that, you know, bigger churches have a tendency to compromise the truth of the gospel. And sometimes that's true, but not always. There's some churches that are growing because they are so devoted to what God is doing. And some churches, and I've had some people say this, is that a church is small because they preach the truth and refuse to compromise. And that's not always true too, as well. Sometimes it's true that they've refused to compromise and, and yet they, they've remained small, but others have remained small because they fail to deal with the issues and problems that come up and they fail to take the steps necessary to be able to minister to the people around. So today what we're going to look at is we're going to see how the church was expanding and they had problems that came up, issues that they had to learn how to deal with, people that were feeling neglected, overlooked, and how they handled them. And we can see that there are some principles for us in our era that as we experience growing pains, that some principles we can put in place to help the gospel go forth, that we may not be tripped up and the gospel held back from reaching and transforming lives. So today as we jump in to this passage, we all need to ask ourselves, what is God trying to show me here? How am I to serve? How am I to help this mission come about? How do I either help, help either create a problem or how can I help a prob keep a problem from happening? So let's see what the early church did and see if there are some true principles that we can apply to our era. But before we do go any further, let's pray that God would give forth his Holy Spirit to speak to us as we seek his word together. Let's pray. Father, as we do enter into your presence, we pause to remember you, to be still and know that you are God that you will be exalted among the nations, you will be exalted among the earth. And we know all too well that it's not your gospel that we have issue with oftentimes, but it's your people. 
that we experience people that we feel might slight us or don't like us. We feel neglected. We feel that we're not heard. Lord, show us how we are to live and move and be as your church, how leaders are to lead, how people are to serve and take responsibility for the areas that you have gifted them to be in. So, Lord, our God, help us to be the, the right people, applying your truth and seeking your face, that your gospel might go forth unhindered, transforming hearts and minds all over the world. So be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Acts chapter 6. Now, when last we left off with the early church, we saw the church explode. It went from 120 to 3,000 and then to 5,000. And we've seen the Holy Spirit working in people's lives in phenomenal ways. But such growth is filled with people, as we said before. More people, more problems. These redeemed people change people, but they're people nonetheless. And whenever you have people, you're going to have problems. There's going to be issues that come up. Churches are not perfect groups. They are organisms and organizations. The church is a vine, but it's also a trellis. The vine is the organism, and the trellis is the organization. And the vine without the trellis has fruit dying on the vine, because the vine won't go any further than the trellis does, and therefore it will stop where it's at, and the fruit will begin to die. The vine can only grow to the extent that the trellis helps it. Pruning the vine and expanding the trellis is not easy. And as we grow as a church, we're going to have growing pains. People aren't going to know as many people. Some will feel at times overlooked and missed. But how do we handle that? What do we need to do? How are we to serve? What we need to do is see what the early church did and see if there are some true principles. So we see this church is filled with personality issues and this organization is growing, but yet it's not always keeping up with the people that are being changed and there are issues that develop. Personality conflicts, communication issues, and whatever things else you can think of. And it's expanding rapidly. And here we have one of the first problems to come up in the history of the church. And we begin in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So let me explain a little bit what's going on here. A Hellenist comes from the, uh, it's actually in the Greek word hellas, which, is, which means Greece. And these were people that spoke a Greek language, but they were ethnically Hebrew. When Alexander the Great conquered the known world, one of the byproducts of that is Greek culture and Greek language spread around the world. Now, you see this happening even today with a lot of American things. I mean, not conquering, but the ideas, music, TV shows, language, some culture aspects permeate into different cultures. When I was in Liberia, I was told that Liberia is called Little America because whatever gets released in America one day, it will be in Liberia the next day. And so there's the part of American culture that permeates. And for those who are from different countries, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There are certain celebrities, certain athletes that are marketed across the world. And people want to adapt that culture to the frustration of those who come from that culture who might be older and see the other in the culture as an invader. And they're compromiser. You've betrayed your history. You've betrayed your family. You've betrayed your tradition. And so you see the language and a lot of the Greek customs go into the Hebrew people. And those who were following these Greek culture, parts of it were called Hellenists. 
And so you see these Hellenists become a believer in Jesus as the Hebrew-speaking Jews were, and there becomes an issue. What's the issue? Well, part of its language, part of its culture, but the, the Hellenists are seeing that uh, these widows, they would come to Jerusalem because they knew that there was a support mechanism in place whereby there were gifts given by the people. The priest would take them and distribute them to the needs of those uh, that were there, especially these widows. And widows, oftentimes in the ancient world, didn't have a lot of rights, although the Old Testament had given several different commands for the, for the Jewish people to take care of the widows, the orphans, or the stra- and the strangers, oftentimes known as the foreigners. And there were so many different provisions, gifts that were to be given to help enable them. Now also, though, in Jewish culture, a widow wasn't allowed to own her husband's property if he died. That would pass on to the son if there was one. If not, it went to a near male relative. So these women would be really left without any power, and if they didn't have children, no support system. So it was important for them to remarry if possible. And so oftentimes, they want to go to where the good men are, and where are the good men going to be? Hopefully, if they're godly men, good Jewish men, they're going to the temple. So part is they want to meet these men. They also know their support system in place. So they're going to the temple, but many of them become believers in Jesus. And yet the apostles then took up the responsibility of what many within the temple or the priests were to be doing, but they're taking care of the widows, the orphans, and the strangers. But specifically here, the widows are the ones that are in reference with ones that were being referred to. I can only assume that they were taking care of the orphans and the strangers as well. But here, the focus is on these widows. And these widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And so a complaint arises and they have to deal with it. Now, what's the first principle then that we can get from this? Is that as we grow, frustrations are going to spring up. It is inevitable. As you deal with people, I don't care who they are, you're going to have problems. And here we have a language issue. Language can be a big issue or a culture issue. And we have several different cultures here at Village Bible Church and different language and backgrounds. And we're trying to figure out how to become this body that God wants us to be. And as we go about it, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to step on one another's toes. We're going to say stupid stuff to one another. But it's learning to be patient, learning to work through these things, because it's through us coming together that shows the reality and the truth of who Jesus is. And that's why we as a church have really tried to endeavor, especially as a campus, try to to do this well. But we're going to have things that come up. And so we have to recognize that, that there are going to be frustrations that spring up from different people. And some people say, well, this is not that big of a deal. It is a big deal to the people that are involved in it. It's a big deal. I mean, for example, I was talking to our brother Sensor, uh, who's in my small group. And right now, I mean, his country, he's from Cameroon, is 80% French speaking and 20% English speaking. Now, the French speaking are forcing the Um, the French speakers are forcing the English speakers to learn French in school, and it's caused them to revolt against that. And they're on on the precipice of civil war right now over language, okay? Over language between English and French speaking. Same, same groups of people, same, same color, but their language is separating it. 
and it can become a big issue. Now, let's put this in American culture. We have several different things as we come together from all different backgrounds, countries, tribes, experiences, ages, lifestyle, economic backgrounds, marital situations. Pick something, and we can find a way to divide over it. So we have to learn to deal with these frustrations as they spring up. Now, sometimes these frustrations have different root causes. The first one is, is they simply might be ignorant of the needs of the people. Now, it, quite possibly, if we were to put ourselves in the, the, the shoes or the, 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 yeah, the shoes of the apostles for a moment, they might have just been ignorant of the needs of the Hellenists. Because people have a tendency to do what? When they see people speaking a different language and they see people speaking their language, which group are they going to go to? You're going to go to your own language. Rather, you walk over to someone speaking Arabic and go, howdy. (laughs) You don't do that. We just don't do that. We go with people that look and sound like us. It's just human nature. And so possibly they just were, they're like, the Hellenists are over there. They're speaking Greek and they're doing their own thing. And we're just going to do our thing too. It's not that they didn't care. Just they didn't, oh, they're in need. They're being neglected. Oh, we didn't know. It could be just that people were ignorant of what was going on. Now, I've seen this happen in churches a lot. People then begin to question the motives of the leaders, thinking they were intentionally overlooked. And the reality is, is the leaders don't know. I've had some people come to me and go, why didn't you visit me in the hospital? I didn't know you were in the hospital. Nobody told me you were in the hospital. I mean, why didn't you, why didn't you call me when I was going through this crisis? Did I know you were in a crisis? Did you tell anybody you were in a crisis? No? Then how can I help you? How can we as a team help you? We were ignorant of what's going on, but now we, now we know we want to be able to help. Now, sometimes it's just an ignorance, and, and they could have quite possibly been ignorant or simply indifferent. They knew about them, but they just didn't care. And that happens in churches. I don't think that's the case with these guys. I don't think they were indifferent to them, but that often happens in a church where it's like, we know about it, we just don't care. And that could be that they're devoting themselves to other things because the church can't do everything. The church cannot meet every one of your needs. It, it can't. We're limited people. But I see a lot of people expect the church to meet all of their needs. Now, sometimes the church is indifferent, and that's wrong. The church needs to be at least sensitive to it and maybe not be able to meet them, but they may not, they might just be indifferent to it and not care. Or, worst case scenario, is they're intentionally discriminating against them. Now, some see that that's what's going on within this passage. There's a reason why they contrast the Hellenists and the Hebrews, and the text makes great effort to say that. I don't think that's the case. I think that happens in churches, but I don't think that's the case here. And you know why? Is because if that were the case, it would seem very strange that the apostles, who are the leaders of this new burgeoning movement, would, first of all, have such a blatant sin, and then these people continue to follow even after they sin, and there's never an apology. Never an apology whatsoever that the apostles make here. So I would say that this isn't one where it's intentionally discriminating against them. It was possibly just ignorant of them. Or it could be one other option that's on the table. It could be simply that they had ineffective systems to help them. Meaning that, that this church grew fast, if you think about it. Sometimes the, the, uh, the vine outgrows the trellis. And these guys, I think this might have been part of the case for them. Because there's no apology that they make. 
and they recognize that there's an issue that's come up, and they, they try to deal with it because they're sitting there trying to handle this. People are coming, bringing money at their feet for them to distribute. Church is growing rapidly. They're like, we're walking around all day trying to feed all these people. We can't keep up with all this. This is what God has called us to. Not that it's not called to widows or to take care of them because the word of God says very clearly that's exactly one of the signs of true religion. I think that's, this is their response is pretty, uh, is a pretty good indication of what's going on. In verse two, we see the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not that right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. They were so busy trying to help the widows that they couldn't preach and pray. And it's not as if they are denigrating what the others are doing, putting it down. They're not saying that others couldn't share the word and definitely weren't saying that others couldn't pray or that their prayers were less effective. If they saw this task as inferior, as some have thought, then it would seem strange that the text goes to such great lengths to describe the qualifications of the people who are to be chosen for the task. And additionally, why would the scripture later say in James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself in stain from the world? Why would he mention that? Why would that say that would be the hallmark of true religion? In practice, it seems like an odd thing if it was considered to be less than. So some would say that. They're elevating this practice over the extent of the other one. I don't think that's what's going on. I think that the problem is that the good was getting in the way of what God had called them and gifted them to do, and that was to preach the word. The point that Luke is making here is that anything good can threaten to impair our mission. Anything good can threaten to impair our mission. See, their mission was to preach the word of God and taking care of the widows and orphans in this instance would have impaired them from preaching and praying and doing what God had called them to do. The word for tables here refers to tables used in monetary matters as well as for serving meals. And that wasn't their task. However, what was the mission of the guys appointed to the task? To take care of the widows. See what I'm saying? Is that they're saying, I'm not gifted and called to do this, but there are people that are. We want to put them in place and release them to be able to do it while God allows us to do this. Similarly, in our church, for example, anyone that's been around me for any period of time knows that I am administratively deficient. I'm not a good administrator. But there's times where I have to administrate. And that, you know what that does? It makes me, I get, I get like scared and nervous because I'm not good at it. My, I get really, my stress level goes way up. And then what happens? My preaching suffers because of that. Because that's not where my giftedness is. But there are some people that are so gifted in that regard and they want to do it. That's what he's saying. We need to find those people that are gifted in their different spheres of ministry and release them to be able to accomplish God's mission and what God has called them to be and do. Does everybody understand? It's very important that we understand that because what we've done is we've elevated one position and put the other ones down so much. But that's not what's going on here. It's the idea of releasing people to do what God has made and called them to be and do. That's what the point is. And when everyone is doing their tasks, amazing things begin to happen. But any of these things can threaten our mission. Now that, with that being said, I want to take a moment to focus on verse 1 again, because there's something here that I believe is vitally important. Let's go back to verse 1. Now in these days, 
when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose. I want to focus on this word complaint here for a minute. The Greek word is gogismos. It means murmuring, muttering, and refers to a secret debate going on. Jesus, when they were debating on if he was the Messiah or not, it says the people are saying, he's, he's the, the Messiah. They're going, no, he's not. And they're privately debating this, and it's becoming a contention. There's a murmuring going on. And Paul actually warns us of murmuring in the book of Philippians chapter 4, or chapter 3. He, he says, do everything without complaining or murmuring. Now, let me say something. We are great at complaining. Some of us in this room have PhDs in complaints. And we can complain. I mean, we have, like, we are black belts in complaining. Seriously, you, you complain about movies. You complain about food. You complain about the service. You complain about the environment. You complain about your neighbor. You complain about your friends. You complain about your kids, your parents. Pick something. You can complain about anything. But you know what happens when you start complaining about everything? You enjoy nothing. You enjoy nothing. I, I used to be a pretty big critic myself. I used to go with a couple of buddies, and we'd go to the movies, and we would come out, and we'd see different, I mean, movies or even performances, musicals, and, and we'd, we'd see them, and we'd come out, and we'd just dissect and rip it apart. And finally, I said, I can't do this anymore because I can't enjoy it. I'm too busy trying to be a critic. And I came out one day, and, I, and the guys were going off, and he says, why aren't you jumping in? And I'm like, because I'm not having fun. If I just digest everything and rip it apart all the time, I can't find any enjoyment in it. And I'm not saying that we, that we don't try to be, uh, use our, our means of, of, of looking at things and evaluating them. But we need to abandon this idea, especially within the church. And let me, let me say this. When you look throughout the Old Testament and the nation of Israel complains, it never ends well. Ever. Ever. Matter of fact, it, it's pretty bad, like, open up the earth and swallow people bad. That's how bad we're talking about here. Now, the question then is, how then do we offer our concerns or something that's frustrating us? I mean, what is the means to do that? We're to do it without complaining, but does that mean that we just get run roughshod over? And some churches have done that. I was talking to a woman the other day that goes to a different church, and she was saying to me that the pastor and her had an issue that was going on, and, and she just said, he said, you have to forgive me. And I mean, biblically, it's right, but the issue hadn't really been dealt with. He had confessed it, but they hadn't changed anything. And he was using the word of God, and, and without understanding the intent of it, that there would be true reconciliation and, and a situation that needed to be dealt with. And he did, it, he did it for the letter of the law, but the spirit of it wasn't brought together. And he was using it as a means of control. And some people will do that. Hey, you can't complain about anything. Hey, I'm being neglected. I'm being here. Don't complain. That's not what the text is telling us to do. So, but most Christians say, how then do I offer up things that I'm bothered by, that are, or that, are, that are true, that I'm really dealing with? And so as a staff, we talked about this. We wanted to give actual steps, how we can follow certain steps to deal with our frustrations. First step. Here's the first step as you deal with your frustration. Number one, this is what we all need to do. Check our hearts. First thing we have to do. If we have an issue that comes up, and they were murmuring and complaining, and finally it got to the apostles after it had been murmured back and forth, going back and forth, and it started to erupt and affect other people, and then people start gossiping and then slandering, and then it comes up on the leader's table. It needed to be dealt with before that. So we have to check our own hearts. Is this issue real? Ask yourself, why am I frustrated right now? 
oftentimes the issue is only in our mind, and it's not real. Now, sometimes it is, but oftentimes we, it's a perception we have, and then what we see, we start making up reasons of why we're frustrated, and we start imputing the person's motive. They don't like me. They don't like the situation I'm in. They don't like my marital status. They don't like that thing I said to them last week. And we make up all these reasons of why they're acting the way that they are. And we have to be careful of that. We have to check our own hearts first. Are we jealous or hurt? And, and we become paranoid and think people don't like us or they've slighted us. And oftentimes it's not the case. We're reading into things and have to check our hearts to see if we perceive things correctly. I had, an, I had a situation like this even happen here at our church. There was a woman that left a few years ago. And she had called for something and I, um, there was a, a message that was left for me and I got it and it got lost in the shuffle of the day and I didn't call her back and I didn't hear from her. Next thing I know, she disappeared from the church. She said, and she never told me why. It got back to me from someone else. Oh, you never, you never called her back. At one time, that's one thing that you're, I had all these other things that were coming up and, and, and she thought I didn't like her or I hated her. And it's like, I didn't have an opportunity to even have any discussion about this. But we have to pause and check our own hearts as we go through these things. Secondly, we have to choose to believe what is best. Choose to believe what is best. Is our issue real? I mean, it, it, if, it, it, if, if we look at the person and we start to impute their motive, we go, have they treated us this way before? Have they, have they ever indicated any other thing uh, that what they're doing right now is against me? No, then I should probably believe the best. You know, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Choose to believe the best about, of the, about them then rather than just go to the negative right away. Don't go to the negative right away. Believe the best about them. Now, next, thirdly, we're to comply with the chain of command. And here's what that means. If you're in a small group and another member of your small group said or did something that upset you, who do you go to? First of all, you go to that person. But if you need counsel, you go to the small group leader. If it can be solved with them, it's great. If it, that doesn't work, you go to the person supervising small groups, or one of our local elders, and then the campus pastor, and then the guiding elders. Some folks have an issue, and they want to go directly to the pastor and unload but sometimes the pastor isn't the right person. And you could be in danger of saying something foolish or making a false accusation, which could have been headed off had you spoken to your small group leader first or your other elder or leader first. And if you still have issue and they can't help then, then help try to create a solution to the problem. Give realistic ideas and specific steps to help. The apostles came up with the solution. Appoint some Hellenistic men of character to solve the problem but help create solutions. I remember when I served at my church in Massachusetts, I'd have these ideas, and there was this one old man, I loved him to death. His name was Dave. And Dave and I would go back and forth, and a lot of pastors didn't like Dave over the years, because Dave could be mean. But I knew that Dave cared, and he just had a hard way of showing it. So we're sitting in this meeting, and I threw up an idea, and I felt like after a while, every idea that I threw up was like a trap shoot. And I was, my idea was a clay pigeon. And every time I'd give an idea, it was like him pulling up a gun going, Paul, give me another idea, <laughs> and another idea. And I finally looked at him after a while, and I said, Dave, I, I don't mind you shooting down my ideas, but help me come up with a solution then. Help me come up with a solution. Don't fight me all the time. Help me, because we, we can't, there has to be a solution here. We need to be able to do something. And so they came up with a solution to create a system, and they appointed people that were administratively gifted to be able to handle the other issues. 
that came up. But let's help create solutions, not more problems. Because when you start to complain, that creates more problems. That creates other issues. And then gossip comes along. Because what happens is you're going to complain to someone that you know. And when you complain to that person you know, they care for you so much that they're going to agree with you even though they've never heard the other side of the story. And then suddenly there are two of you together that are frustrated. And then each of you are going to tell, you're, you're going to go, well, that's a really bad thing. And the other person's going to say, well, that's, a right, that's a bad thing after all. And then you invite another person in and another and another. And now you all are talking about something bad because the first person said there was something bad. But you have to be able to evaluate yourself first. I, I had a, uh, again, I, I had a woman talk to me the other day about an issue, a, a different church entirely. And, and she was talking to me about something. And I said, you know, she goes, well, am I right in my perception here? I said, I don't know. I said, why? Because the proverb says, a man's way seems right until another comes forward to question him. Which means this, there are two sides to every story. If what you're telling me is correct, then yes, but I know that I'm only hearing your perception of this issue. And I need to hear the other side. And so we need to be able to do that as Christians. When we hear issues come up, we have to go, that sounds pretty bad, but I'm going to reserve judgment. I'm not going to talk to other people about this, but I want to find out more. And then I'm going to ask someone who's a leader more about it to find out. So it can be nipped in the bud. But comply with the chain of command, create solutions. Now, here's what we're not to do. We are not to criticize other people. Don't go around talking bad about anything and everything that the church is not doing. It's easy to criticize, whether it's movies, service, music performances, and the like. We're great critics. When I was a much younger man, as I said before, I used to criticize all the time, and I realized I just couldn't do it. I couldn't find enjoyment. And also, when you get in leadership, there are so many different things that are involved in it. You can't control everybody. You do the best that you can. You learn from your mistakes. Now, here's another thing we're not to do. We're not to collude with others. That's a big word right now in our media. Collude is a word that's getting a great deal of press. It means to come to a secret understanding for a harmful purpose, conspire. Several years ago, I, I remember when I was serving at a church, um, I, I had a day off and I had I'd forgotten something at the church and I came back in where I was serving and I came in and there was a meeting going on that I wasn't invited to between two of the other leaders. When I walked in the door, they got hushed tones. They put their heads down. I just got my thing, walked out, didn't think much about it, just seemed a little weird at first. I didn't want to impute their motives. Maybe it was a private issue they were getting counsel on, but it came out later that they were conspiring against the leadership. They were colluding, and then they were exposed, and then they both had to leave the church for that issue. Don't collude with other people. Don't conspire. Don't invite people in to your issue. Let's try to find out what is true and right. And here's another thing we're not to do is we're not to carry unrealistic expectations. Don't carry unrealistic expectations. See, oftentimes in churches, we have a tendency to place unrealistic expectations on our leaders. We expect them to be able to help us through every situation or give us the solution to every problem or be at the hospital for every sickness, but that only leads to disappointment. While there are some realistic and healthy expectations that we should have of our leadership, we should be, they, we, we should be treated with respect. We should, we should expect that. And we should be valued and loved. And we should be, um, expect to be treated fairly and honestly. But we can expect that they will know how to handle every situation that comes our way. The people wanted the apostles to handle everything well. And the apostles actually turned it back around to them 
and had them be the solution to their own problem. They appointed qualified men to lead the task of helping their widows, and it was a win-win for them all. Now, as we experience these growing pains, we can see we'll have to find good people to serve. Right now, that's what we're looking for. Our church is growing. The vine is growing, but the trellis needs to be expanded. The vine is growing, but the trellis needs to be expanded. And we're appointing leaders, new elders, different leaders, but we need people to step in. And there's so much that I think we're just scratching the surface of what God is wanting to do here at the Aurora campus and through Village Bible Church as a whole. But we have to find good people to serve. Now, we're no longer in the age of the apostles. We can see that there are still, we are still, though, to find good people to serve in expanding God's kingdom. Our church is growing, and we need all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds to serve. Men and women of character, regardless of culture or language. And we're looking for people who want to serve and expand God's kingdom. Let's look at the criteria that the apostles used to select the leaders who would help. Notice they were to pick seven men of good repute, of good reputation. The word here is someone who is proven and trustworthy. They were true and trustworthy Christ followers, shown to be men of integrity uh, and justice. In other words, they have a good standing in the church. They're proven. This is why we have, when, when we evaluate leaders stepping in, we've had people come to us over the years and say, they, they, they become to the church right away, and they say, I want to step into leadership. We, we don't know who you are. We don't know anything about you. And you find out that they had a reputation and they'd gone to other churches and their reputation was a bad reputation. And they would cause problems wherever they went. So we are looking for people that want to serve, have a desire to serve, and are willing to sacrifice to be able to do so. I am amazed at how service has become more of a chore and a burden than a joy and a delight in our culture. I, I, am, a, I am stymied. Because people, it's like, you, you want to get a person to serve, and they're like, oh, wow. Do I want to serve? Let me pray about that. And usually that's an excuse. Not, not always. Some people generally pray about it, but sometimes it's a way to, like, I don't want to say no to you right now because I don't want to inconvenience, and I don't see the real benefit or blessing of it because I'm already too busy. It's true. It happens. We're all busy people. But we're busy doing other things. I mean, are we too busy for God? Is God too busy for us. If we were to treat God, I mean, if the way that, I mean, if God was to treat us the way we treat him, what would happen? We give him our scraps, we give him our leftover time, leftover money, yet we expect everything. And we give hardly anything, oftentimes. Now, some really do give a lot, and if you are, you're not who I'm talking to and indicting here. This is a question we have to ask ourselves. Are we really giving everything to him? So these are people that have good standing in the church. They've been around. They have a heart to serve God and have treated people fairly. Now, the church is young, but in this time, they've proven themselves. How did this translate to our time? Well, if you want to be used of God, you need to commit to the people of God and you need to serve, to step up, be available. I'm amazed at how many people just want to be entertained, to be observers, but not participate in what God is doing. If we want to be used of God, then we need to be involved with God's people and that takes time, sacrifice, patience, and persistence. It's not going to happen overnight. There will be conflict, but it's through the conflict that intimacy and trust, hopefully, is developed.
Now notice that these men were also to be full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. I find that when many of us as Christ followers see fill of the Spirit, we scratch our heads. We're not exactly sure what that means. We have pictures of people, uh, crazy stuff that we've seen on YouTube videos or television. We're not exactly sure what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And sometimes we have such a spiritual understanding of it that it doesn't translate to everyday life. And other times that it's, it's so just generalized that it, there's not a supernatural element to it. So what does it mean to be spirit-filled? And these men need to be spirit-filled. What does that mean? It means that we are doing things that God wants. Let's put it just simply that way. We're doing things that God wants. If I, to really simplify it and break it down. Now let me describe it a little bit to expand it a bit more. When we come to know Jesus, we're given God's spirit to dwell within us, to live within us. If God lives in us, how then do we need to be, uh, how, how do we then learn to be filled with the Spirit? Is that different? If he's dwelling in me and he's filling me, is that the same thing or is it different? It's different. While we have the Spirit of God living in us, we're not always living in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit. Well, what does it mean? Let me try to break this down. As people, we are more than flesh. We possess a soul, spirit, and body. As one scholar wrote, the spirit, pneuma, that's the Greek word for it, is the part that enables man to perceive the divine. Through this component, he can know and communicate with God. This higher element, though damaged through the fall of man, is sufficiently intact to provide each individual a consciousness of God. The soul, the Greek word for that is psyche, is the sphere of man's will and emotions. Here is his true center of personality. It gives him a self-consciousness that relates to the physical world, to the body, and to God through the Spirit. Now, when we receive God's Spirit, he influences and directs our spirit, but our spirit has to submit to the Holy Spirit, and this happens by dying to our flesh and taking in the things of the Spirit, reading, meditating, and applying the Word of God, which then enables us to discern more clearly the mind of God um, and that means we can turn away from sin and pursue righteousness. Let me illustrate it. How about this? If I get on my bike, I need my tires to be filled. There might be a little air in it, but it really it's not the tire that's filled. It's the inner tube. I already have some air in my tires, but it's not enough. I need more air. When I fill it up, I'm great. Your body is actually the tire. Your soul is the inner tube, and your spirit is the air in the tire already. You need to be filled with God's spirit. How? By taking the cap off of flesh and then hooking up to the air compressor of his word, allowing him to fill you and doing the things that are spirit-filled. Worship, being with God's people, hearing the word of God preached, meditating on it. That's connecting to the air compressor of God. And he begins to fill us up to find a foundation and, be, and to really walk and be filled with the spirit. The spirit-filled person is the person who is constantly hooking up to the air compressor of his word through reading, listening, meditating, and obeying and doing what God says. That's what it means. And in verse 3, we read that these leaders also need to possess wisdom. In other words, they need to be skilled for the job. That's what wisdom is. It's skill for living and thinking through decisions and how things are to be done. How to work with people, knowing how to discern situations well, have the practical common sense how to help and deal with conflict when it comes up. 
Not everyone in this situation was wise to be able to do it well. But whenever we look for any type of leader, we need to find people that are skilled to do the task that God has called them to. And sometimes we fail in this. Because those people who are skilled aren't stepping up. And we need to make sure that they are set apart for the task. The apostles appoint them to the job. They prayed for them, laid their hands on them, which was their way of blessing them and setting them apart for a specific task. Leaders need to be recognized by other leaders in the church as those designated with authority to do the task. And the specific task was for helping the Hellenistic widows. This leads to more questions. What is your task that God wants to set you apart for? It may not be a position such as this, but there is something. What is it? Because remember, if God calls you and saves you, if he calls you and saves you, without exception, he's called you to do something. He's called us all to be something, to be holy, to be set apart, to be filled with the Spirit, to walk with God. What is God calling you to do? What is he calling you to do? What is your task that he has set you apart for and placed within your heart and divinely gifted you to do that you feel the joy of God when you do it? When I preach, I feel the joy of God because that's what God made me to do. And I knew as soon as he saved me that I was called to be preaching. I knew it right away. What has God called you to do? Maybe you haven't discovered that yet. Maybe you haven't found that yet. But you can't just sit around. You have to try different things. When I was a student at Moody Bible Institute, they would put you into different ministries to see so you could learn and find out what that is. Are you willing to serve and step into those ministries, whatever they might be? Whether it's working with widows, whether it's working with Meals of Mercy, whether it's working as small groups or putting coffee or hospitality or administration. And if, not, if it's not there, then we need to create it because the organization has to also keep up with the organism. And as the organism grows, the organization grows with it. What has God called you to do? Now notice what happens after these guys step into the position which enables the apostles to continue on to do what their mission God had for them. Verse 7, key verse. And the word of God continued to increase in esteem and, 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 and touching other people's lives and transforming hearts and minds. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And I love this last part. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now that's, that's telling there. Because who are really going to be the hardest people to reach? The priests are. Because they were the educated. They had a lot more on the line. To agree with Jesus means they could be put out of the synagogue. But see, when the, when the apostles were released to do what God had called them to do, these lives were touched that other people thought would be untouchable. When we're doing what God has called us to do, then that enables the word of God to go forth and transform hearts and minds. Now let me say this. In our culture right now, in the United States, we're seeing pluralism on the rise. We're seeing people coming from countries and with religious backgrounds that have never even known one single Christian. In our own community, we've seen it growing greatly. We're seeing, we're seeing Islam grow. We're seeing Hinduism grow. We're seeing just pagan, I mean, paganism grow or no religion at all or postmodernism. I mean, put an ism on it. It becomes a religion in itself. But if other people aren't doing what they're supposed to do, it limits those who are and able and desire to engage with those other cultures so that they can be one accordingly to the faith. Do you see, see how it all connects together? is it releases us to be able to do what God's gifted us to do. But when people don't step up because either they're afraid, afraid they're not good enough, afraid they're not skilled, afraid, I mean, pick your fear, 
Don't be afraid. The devil wants to keep you limited so that he keeps the word of God limited. Because if you don't do the job that he's called you to do, then that causes the word of God to be inhibited and not be able to go forth to change lives because other people are doing the jobs they're not supposed to be doing. So this is where we all need to step up and do our part. It's not just the paid employee. To engage, to watch the gospel spread in amazing ways. For priests to come to the faith was, in Jesus was a big deal. That's what happened when men and women are released to do the job God has for them and the kingdom expanded in amazing ways. I read a great book uh, by a guy named Bob Roberts. Bob Roberts, church planner in Dallas, Texas. He's a, uh, a Texan to the core, cowboy boots and big hats. And he decided to reach out to the community around him and his people were doing the jobs they were supposed to do. And so it freed him to engage. And so what he did was he actually called the local rabbi of the synagogue that was there, and he called the local imam. And he started building friendships with him, sharing the gospel with him. And then even he took his church to the, it is funny, the, the church, the synagogue, and the mosque started engaging with one another. And so what he did is he got his people to go to mosque on Friday to observe how it went. And then they would go to the synagogue on Saturday and then the church on Sunday, and then the, the, the Muslims would go to mosque, and then they went to the synagogue, went to the church, and they're hearing the message of Jesus. And he said, if, 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 if it's true, we shouldn't be afraid. I mean, if the gospel's true, then we know it's going to do its work. We shouldn't be afraid what other people think. And that caused him to build another relationship, by the way. So he gets invited by a Saudi Arabian prince to go to Saudi Arabia and share the gospel on Saudi Arabian television. And that led to another relationship where he's invited to Afghanistan. <laughs> he's in Afghanistan, and he goes, I'm sharing the gospel with these tribal leaders when one of them, I find out, is the son of a Taliban chieftain. And he says, then I get invited. I said, oh, the, he's making a comment of the hills in Afghanistan, and the, the son, the Taliban chief's son goes, Bob Roberts, you want to see? We will take you to see. He goes, here I am traveling with the Taliban, and I'm sharing the gospel with them. Enables the, the word of God to go forth. And he goes, and then we went hunting. He goes, it was the most interesting hunting experience of my life. We're in the back of a Jeep with bazookas hunting camels. True story. But this man is sharing the gospel in parts of the world that are closed off and we think are enemies, but they need Jesus more than anything else. And the word of God begins to spread and lives begin to be changed when we take a risk. But we need to be able to do our job, to hold our part of the rope when we hold our part of the rope, that enables those that can go down into the deep and dark places to accomplish great things for the glory, honor, and praise of his name. So let me ask you this. I don't care if you're a college student, middle school student. I don't care if you're retired. I don't care if you don't speak whatever language you speak or culture you come from or background you have. You have a task. What has God called you to, and are you doing that task? And if not, why not? What's your excuse? Repent, turn away from it, and embrace what God's called you to do to make his name known that it can make and go to the furthest reaches, deepest, darkest places for the glory, honor, and praise of his name.